0: Did you get touched by a goddess?
1: I, I did, but yes, she touched me and made me look brawny, and my, my thighs have never looked so good, and I've got a wonderful tan now. <laughs> well, you are
0: a personal trainer in your day job, so I have absolutely no doubt. I, I don't practice what I preach, Sam.
1: <laughs> I've got very fat, very lazy, and I have horrible posture.
0: Marvellous. <laughs> I mean, there's there's nothing it there's nothing I can really out. say to that, <laughs> is there? It's been a while since we actually saw each other. You know, the photos on your website could be several years old.
1: I found out from one client who I train that um, she was on Tinder and she saw a picture of someone she knew very well. It was one of her best friend's husbands. And the photo he was using on Tinder was actually one of their wedding photos where he cut (laughs) out his wife. (laughs) Uh, Classy. Uh, Stay classy. Wow. Uh,
0: Maybe that should be a topic for an episode coming up sneaky historical sidelines
1: <laughs> that's no no that's good historical tinder dates we could go for cleopatra yeah, she was a whore wouldn't she oh Harlot. easy
0: come on now some blame to Mark. some blame <laughs> to mark anthony <laughs> nice hello tom hello sam how are you i am very good thank you how are you doing this fine fine friday afternoon slash morning I'm wonderful. I'm
1: wonderful. It's definitely my evening. I'm fairly sure of that.
0: Uh, it's definitely my morning. I'm sat here in my pants as Bloody pur. Excellent. Enjoying a uh, snowy view out over Manchester. Well,
1: yeah, I can't say the same here. I'm, I'm looking out at the dark. But it has been a sunny day. <laughs> it's been a sunny day out in New Zealand. I should probably explain why it's my evening. Um, yes, I'm... I'm tuning in from New Zealand.
0: So for those who are new to this podcast, which is pretty much everyone since this is probably going to be episode number one, um, this is That Was Genius, a podcast in which two men on different sides of the world, but united by a love of history, surprise each other with a story about history. I am in the UK. Tom is in New Zealand. We are in many ways completely opposite people. He says tomato, I say tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off or assemble a group of bishops, split our churches and result in 400 years of strife and socioeconomic deprivation. I like it. Did you like that?
1: <laughs> they, they do say tomato in New Zealand, though, I think. Sorry do to they? ruin it. Yeah, oh. sorry to ruin it. Shit.
0: Cut it. Start it again.
1: <laughs> yeah, start all over again. So what's our topic for this first week? I think we chose it last week, didn't we?
0: Yeah, so last week we did a pilot which may or may not ever get released, and you uh, probably won't ever hear if you're listening to this. But we decided that the topic for this week is going to be Eureka Moments. So the format's pretty simple. We each take it in turns to tell each other a historical story of awe and wonder. We interrupt, we swear a bit. It basically becomes a fantastic podcast. And this week we are doing Eureka Moments, or moments when
1: people said... Ooh, excellent. Is it worth uh, defining Eureka moments? Because li- I, I found this quite difficult, Sam, because I was thinking about Eureka moments and there are some quite well-known ones, um, but I, I wanted to be a bit more creative because we've all heard of, for example, Isaac Newton, haven't we? Sitting under the apple tree an apple falls on his head and he goes, Oh, gravity, um, which call me a cynic, but I doubt that's how it happened. I'm sure he was pondering the concept of gravity long before an apple fell on his head. So are we okay if we broaden the definition slightly, make it so that it's, you know sudden moments of inspiration or discovery, intuition, I suppose. Is that okay?
0: That's absolutely fine. I feel obliged to say that that is absolutely fine, because from the fact that you're already three minutes into the podcast <laughs> looking for loopholes, that, um, that if I said, <laughs> yeah. no, stick rigidly to the rules, this might fuck up this entire thing. Absolutely. So
1: you go for it. <laughs> I haven't got anything prepared if we don't do that. So that that's good. I'm, I'm glad you're a, flexible, you're a flexible host. Thank you. My pleasure.
0: The flip side of this is that I am going to make you
1: go first. Oh, no, that's all right. That's quite fine. I'm, I'm quite happy to go first. Um, do, Incidentally, Sam, do you know the origins of the word Eureka?
0: Um, I do, but let's fill people in.
1: Excellent. I think we should. I think we should.
0: Right, do you, so, no, do you know what? I, I, I tell a bloody lie, because I know about the thing in the bath, but I don't know why he shouted Eureka. I don't know why that word.
1: So let's take ourselves back to, I think it was a third century BC in Syracuse, which was in Sicily, and it was a sort of independent... I think it's more of a Greek state than a Roman state. We're actually talking about Archibald Medes. Um or Archie to his friends, and since uh the third century B C it's been bastardized into common parlance as Archimedes, but I prefer to call him Archie. Um so his name was
0: actually Archie.
1: No, it wasn't. Um no, no. that's that's me being silly. <laughs> I just think it reads better as Archie Archie Medes. It's a sort of you know when you know when you first read Harry Potter and you have no idea how to pronounce Hermione? Yeah. And you, Yeah, it's a little bit like that. When you read Archimedes for the first time, it looks like Archimedes, doesn't it? So Archimedes was a, a great mathematician of ancient Rome, and ancient Greece. And um, he was well known as being a mathematician and an engineer. And the king of Syracuse had a bit of a problem. He was in a bit of a pickle. He had asked for a crown to be made of gold. And he had a sneaking suspicion that the chaps that were making the crown had made some adjustments to it. Um, made the gold less pure by including some silver and they'd basically pinched some gold. And so um, the king wanted a way of discerning whether or not that had been the case. So Archimedes was pondering this and he sort of went and had a bath and he was sort of playing with his rubber duckies and he'd put in a load of bubble bath and he was putting it all over his face and pretending to be Father Christmas like we all do. And um, he realized that he had displaced a lot of water. And then he thought, wow, there you go. That's it. That's my eureka moment. Um, the water displacement could be my uh, tool for working out what the mass of the crown is. And I'm going to be honest with you now, Sam. I don't know very much about physics, chemistry or fluid mechanics. So I'm not going to try and explore this anymore or explain how water <laughs> displacement can uh can allow you to establish whether or not metal <laughs> has been made less pure but we'll, we'll leave that to you can go and research that yourself and try and comprehend it but archimedes when he works this out he jumps up and he shouts eureka which is ancient greek for i've got it and then like you or i or any normal person would do he decides to celebrate the discovery by streaking through the streets of uh, syracuse
0: i mean oh to be fair though the Greeks didn't really wear many clothes anyway. I've seen a few Greek pots in my time. And um, if there's two things the Greeks love, it's not wearing any clothes and shagging goats whilst they're not wearing any clothes. <laughs> thats That doesn't apply to
1: modern Greek people, by the way. I'm not being racist. This is purely the ancients. Purely the ancients loved a goat and loved a bit of nudity. So you might be right, Sam. You might, you, It might have been not quite as novel as it might be, for example, in Newcastle uh, at two in the morning on a cold Friday night. Um, having someone stre- streaking <laughs> through the streets.
0: We've all been uh, examining fluid dynamics in an alleyway in Newcastle at two o'clock in the morning on a Friday, Tom.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Displacing fluids all over our shoes along with little bits of kidnap.
1: <laughs> Excellent. So, like with the um, with the story of Isaac Newton, I'm I'm not convinced that Archimedes actually discovered it that suddenly, but it's a, it's a good storytelling tool, and um, these Eureka moments have been used in a lot of stories. Going back to Hermione, if you uh, you've read your Harry Potter books, haven't you, Sam? Do
0: you know what I'm ashamed to say, and almost slightly proud to say that I have never read a Harry Potter book. Oh dear, I am so culturally blind, Tom. I saw Greece for the first time last weekend. Oh dear me! But don't don't bother explaining the backstory of this because I know that most of the listeners are not as uh, ignorant culturally <laughs> cretinous as I am.
1: <laughs> culturally cretinous, I like that. Um. The, one of the books one of the early but I think it's the third book The Chamber of Secrets oh I'm going to get some Harry Potter enthusiasts being very unhappy if I'm wrong with that it might be the second book there is a moment in there where Hermione realises that, that the basilisk is um, is killing lots of people in Hogwarts and she has her Eureka moments it's very very common in literature because it allows for a dramatic turn of events and I think that's kind of what's being used here with Archimedes and with Isaac Newton you know it's a, it's a sort of storytelling tool I am glad that you brought it back to history
0: from Hermione because I would probably <laughs> have raised issue if in a history-based podcast
1: your eureka moment of choice to discuss was the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah no no don't worry don't worry we are we are getting on it I just I just like taking my time Sam I like taking the scenic route to my uh to my <laughs> my story. So Sam now this is where the link comes in I decided I would go to the from Archimedes in ancient Greece I would go even more ancient Greece and I would go back, back, and further back to the eighth century BC, to the second oldest book in Western literature. Do you know what that is, Sam?
0: Uh, I have no idea. I'm trying to think of a comedy book to think of, but I can't find one in Just my head right now.
1: Something with a rude title that would do. Um, so it's actually the Odyssey, and that will give you a clue as to what's the oldest book, which is the Iliad by both by the Bard. Homer and obviously yeah back in the 8th century BC I think it was probably sung not written because it comes from an oral tradition as far as I understand anyway the Odyssey has lots of sort of eureka moments in the final chapters used as sort of literary tools for just a dramatic finish and I'll go into a bit I'll give you a bit of background to the Odyssey just for those who have read it and forgotten or those who have never read it so the Odyssey is the story of Odysseus Returning from the Trojan Wars. And we've all heard about the Trojan Wars. We might go into details on that. And he's got, he was at the Trojan Wars for 10 years. And it took him 10 years to get home. Largely his own fault, because he pissed off Poseidon. And if there's one thing I've learned from reading the Odyssey, it's don't piss off Poseidon, you know?
0: Who is the god of the sea.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And he pissed off Poseidon by, um, poking one of his sons in the eye and blinding him. Just to you know, make things worse, that son was Polyphemus. I think it was Polyphemus. who only had one eye because he was a cyclops. So you know, he only had one eye to lose. And Odysseus goes and pokes it out. So he takes ten years to get home to Ithaca, which is in Greece. And when he gets home to Ithaca, he finds out his wife Penelope and his only son Telemachus are having some real problems with a bunch of suitors who are basically they've basically taken over Odysseus's home, and are eating all of his swine, drinking all of his wine and basically trying to bonk Penelope. So it's all a bit of a pickle, really, Sam. That's a bit forward, isn't it?
0: That's a little bit rude. Not only am I going to come and try and seduce you but I'm going to do it whilst <laughs> camping out in your house eating all of your food. Absolutely. That doesn't scream in Future Husband material,
1: does it? <laughs> no. No, it's, it's not it's not very chivalrous, I don't think. It's not. So these suitors are just being a pain in the ass, basically. They think that Odysseus is dead because he's been away for 20 years and he's, as far as they're concerned he's, he's gone. A lot of the other heroes of the Trojan War have returned successfully. Well, not successful, actually a lot of them died. But anyway, Anyway, let's jump to when he arrives in Ithaca having had lots of adventures for, for 10 years so he arrives in Ithaca washed up on the shore largely thanks to Athena so he's pissed off Poseidon but Athena uh, the goddess is on his side so he, he does have one of the gods on his side which is good and um, he goes to the the hut of his old swineherd, um Eumaeus And Odysseus pretends that he's just a beggar. He just pretends that he's just watching He he doesn't let anyone know who he is. And this is where the good revelations and the Eureka moments come from. Whilst he's at this hut, who turns up but Telemachus, his only son, who's just narrowly avoided being killed by the suitors. So they really are a rather horrible bunch, Sam.
0: What a bunch of wankers. Why on earth, if you wanted to marry a woman, would you go out of your way to try and kill her son? It doesn't scream... Marriage material to me, as if eating her out of house and home wasn't bad enough.
1: I know, I know, and they're, they're bonking all of it, all of his and her maids as well. So all the maids of the house, are, 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 you know, they're, they're joining in the fun. It's just it's chaos, son. Huh? Quite frankly, it's chaos. And there's only one man that we want to come and sort it out. There's only one man who can sort it out, and his name is Odysseus.
0: I was going to go. Uh, uh, no, skip that bit. I'll edit that out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're going you're to go, Mister T. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, so we've got the first revelation. The first moment where um, Odysseus reveals himself to his son, Telemachus. And it's a a rather emotional moment. And Athena is there to lend a helping hand. She does this a lot in the Odyssey. Let me read it. As she spoke, Athena touched him with her golden wand. That's Uh Odysseus. First, she clothed him in a fresh cloak and tunic, then restored his stature and youthful vigor. His bronze tan returned. His jaw filled out and the beard grew dark on his chin. Her work done, Athena disappeared, and Odysseus went back into the hut. His son gave him a look of amazement, then withdrew his eyes for fear that he might be a god, and said with words that were winged, "Stranger, you're not the same now as before." Anyway, there's the revelation. Odysseus soon points out, oh, "I'm not a god, actually. I'm your dad, Telemachus." Dad, home. Hey, cuddle. <laughs> uh, and they pro- they have a bit. They have a big cuddle, and uh, you know, Odysseus does dad-like things, like blow raspberries on Telemachus' stomach and all that sort of thing. Uh, He's been gone for 20 years. How
0: old is Talenica? Absolutely. Come here, 30-year-old son. Let me blow raspberries on
1: you and change your nappy. <laughs> blow raspberries on your hairy stomach, filled with lint. Um, yes. This does explain why the suitors might have been trying to kill him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a,
0: something, of a, something of a leech in a moocher. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah not, still hadn't got a job. Still have not left home. Um, so anyway, you have the Telem- Telemachus revelation, and the two of them then make a bit of a plan. They basically decide they're going to go and give all the, the suitors six of the best. They're going to go and They're going to sort them all out, which as far as I'm concerned is pretty good. Um, so they decide Odysseus decides he's going to disguise himself as a beggar, and he's going to go into his old home and just scout around, sniff around, find out what's going on. Find, how, find out who's good, find out who's bad and then kill them all regardless, which is actually what happens. Um,
0: (laughs) That's a a somewhat pointless segue in the story, isn't it? Let me... (laughs) I'm going to kill you all anyway, but I'm going to do a little bit of an assessment on you first.
1: You're absolutely right, and I've got another good quote. This is, um, here we go, let's have a look, here we go. Athena now appeared before Odysseus and urged him to go round collecting scraps from the suitors and so learn to distinguish the good from the bad. Though this did not mean that in the end she was to save a single one from destruction. <laughs> so so she, she was, they were going to die anyway. It didn't matter. They were ruthless. They were absolutely ruthless. Oh.
0: Uh, also, I have to say, all this effort that Athena's gone to touching him with a magic wand and um, making him all beautiful again, and all these, he's just going to grow his beard out right away again, dress up as a beggar again. I, and sold off back home. A, I think, given, given that she's just performed a miracle on him, that seems somewhat ungrateful.
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, she does this a lot of theme. I mean, obviously, it's obviously a very temporary spell. Um, she does a lot of sort of turning up in people's dreams and whispering in their ears. She does a lot of this stuff. Uh, but I, I particularly. Oh, so do I. <laughs> yeah, with your wand out. Yep. Wear it a tag. <laughs> yeah. So we have a really... Uh, I like this encounter, Sam. This is an encounter with a chap called Melanthius, who also is technically one of Odysseus' um, servants. And Melanthius sees the beggar. Ha! The fellow cried. One villain leading another. A case of birds of the feather. Tell me, you miserable swineherd, Where are you taking this dirty pig of yours, this nauseating beggar and plate liquor at the feast? Just the sort to stand scratching his back against the doorpost, begging for scraps, but never asking for swords and cauldrons. I love that. That's that's a good insult, isn't it? I mean, that's that's a cracking put down. I like that. Put him in his place, Melanthius. Little does Melanthius know that Odysseus is going to give him a bit of the. Uh, he's going to he's going to give him a he's going to give him one quite right too. Picking on the homeless like that. Absolutely, he's going to get a knuckle sandwich or two when it comes to it. We have another little revelation. So we get Argus the Hound soon after this. So when um, Odysseus is about to enter the the house, Nargos, his old hound, who again, must be about 20 years old. (laughs) If not more. If not more. So Argus the Hound is sitting on a... I know the poor thing he has been left. He's not been cared for. He's starving. He's sitting on a mound of dung outside the building. But Argus recognises Odysseus. just raises an eyebrow and gives a smile, but he hasn't got the energy to run up to him. So that's probably the the least dramatic of the oh. eureka moments when someone realises who Odysseus is. I'm not sure.
0: I'm not sure we can stretch to allowing a eureka moment for the dog. <laughs>
1: yeah. Can we not? Can we? Can we, can we not? Really?
0: Sorry, oh, Argus. It's disappointing. Sorry, poor Argus. I do feel um, sorry. I do so, feel sorry for Argus, poor old mate. No teeth. Yeah, I I do as
1: well. Sat I there. I do as well. I mean, it, to be honest with you, I mean, his choice to sit on the dung was probably his. So there is an element of him needing to take responsibility for his life. I mean, dogs do love dung. Do they love poo? <laughs> do they? They love poo. Yeah, yeah. Fox poo,
0: particularly. I, oh my God! If your dog, if you ever come across a dog who's rolled in fox poo, it is just the worst smell in the world. But they do it with such a massive grin on their face. Uh, they're so they're so proud, and they just want to share their. This is like a real eureka moment for a dog is discovering that fox poo is rollable in. <laughs> they're so excited. It's a reverse eureka moment because they have a u- re- eureka moment, run naked through the streets, and then you have to give them a bath.
1: <laughs> yeah, like yeah, nice, nice. I once, when I was in India, I once saw a stray dog attempt to hump a stray pig.
0: <laughs> Needs must.
1: There was there was no. Yeah, absolutely. There's no sort of beautiful misty sunrise over the Ganges for me. No, I was watching dogs hump pigs. <laughs> I've seen um, a similar
0: thing in Newcastle.
1: We, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hoodum fish. Yeah, nice. Uh, so we've, we've got a nice little moment here with uh, another beggar called Iris. Um, who turns up at the at the hall as well? And Odysseus. I mean, again, Iris doesn't realise Odysseus is Odysseus, so he starts picking on him. And oh, what a mistake to make it! And so we basically get an opportunity where one of the one of the worst of the suitors decides. All right, let's settle this with a fight. Go on, then, you you beggar who happens to be Odysseus, have a little scrap with Iris. And uh, there's a nice description here that I like. They all approved of his words, so Odysseus tucked up his rags round his loins and bared his fine, massive thighs. His broad shoulders and his chest and brawny arms were now revealed. Athena herself stood by and filled out the limbs of this shepherd of the people. As a result, all the suitors were lost in amazement and significant glances of comments were exchanged. And there she is again, you know, just giving a little bit of help, just making his thighs look nice, filling out his shoulders, Making him look good.
0: These days, paying homeless people to fight each other uh, is frowned upon.
1: Yes. The Greeks had a very strange moral code, didn't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. It wasn't... I think you're absolutely right. Wasn't there a YouTube channel or was it a website like 10 years ago that was pretty repulsive?
0: There was. And I can't, I can't remember because I was just thinking about this and I can't remember if it actually existed, which I think it did, or whether it was used as a... Whether it was part
1: of a storyline for a TV series. I think I actually... Sorry. No, no, I, I think it might have been both. <laughs> I, I, oh, okay, you think it might have been both. Anyway, for, for what was supposed to be a light-hearted um, podcast, I think we should probably <laughs> move away from that topic. Um, so so we, have, uh, we now know Odysseus has got lovely, lovely thighs. <laughs> um, and, you know, Sam, we, let's be honest, we, we all like to admire another man's thighs. We don't really like to admit it, but we've all done it. We've all seen another man's thighs and gone, oh, yeah, that's a yeah, good, good absolutely. definition.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs>
1: lovely lovely quads um, so <laughs> so we get this t- we get this like beggar turf war then we get another revelation this is another good one so this is I might pronounce the name wrong this is Eurycleia who's uh, Odysseus's old maid and by all accounts um, an old lady by now because I think she may well have brought up Odysseus she may have been like a, um, a wet nurse from what um, Odysseus says and uh, she notices that it's Odysseus when she's washing his feet and uh, sees a scar that only Odysseus would have because it was from a boar hunt when he was younger. And what would you do, Sam, if, you know, uh, someone who's a a loving maid of your family who you haven't seen for 20 years suddenly discovers you, you? Would you presumably give her a hug?
0: Well, obviously I would, but I'm predicting, since this is a Greek epic, that he either kills her or turns her into some kind of animal.
1: It, not quite that bad, but he's really rather nasty, Sam. He's, he's not the nicest person to her. Nurse, he said, do you want to ruin me, you who suckled me at your own breast? I am indeed home after twenty years of grief and trouble, but since God has revealed it to you, keep your mouth shut, and let not a soul in the house learn the truth. Otherwise I tell you plainly, and you know I make no idle threats, that if the gods deliver these fine suitors into my hands, I won't spare you. Though you're my own nurse... On the day when I put the rest of the maze in my palace to death. Whoa, hold on there, mate. Whoa, Odysseus. Oh, I think what you've a I think dick. you've um reacted a bit much. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that was a, a proportional response, so, uh, Odysseus. We then get the cool moment where Odysseus plots to kill all the suitors. So he's got a little bit of help from some of his from some of his old loyal servants who shut the doors and um, make sure the armory is is locked so that the suitors can't go and get themselves armed.
0: This is the montage in the film version, isn't it? This is the um, preparing Skyfall. Oh to be yes, assaulted absolutely. Bit. That
1: the bit we always used to like in A Team. Yeah, it's that bit it is and so we get the moment with the bow so we get a challenge laid down which of the suitors can uh, can string um, Odysseus's old bow and then fire an arrow through 12 axe heads and they all try they fuck it up Telemachus gets closest because hey he's Odysseus's son he's got his, he's got good genetics got lovely legs himself the
0: family thigh the family
1: thigh yeah absolutely and uh, and so eventually Odysseus says well why can't I have a go and all the suitors go Pfft, you're, a, you're a little beggar But lo and behold, he strings the bow, fires it through. Uh, He doesn't settle himself with just firing it through the axe heads. He decides now's time. And so we get this kill bill moment where um, just violence is let loose. And there are about 100 suitors. I think there were slightly over 100 suitors. And Telemachus, Odysseus, and I think a couple of their loyal servants get involved as well. Just go fucking apeshit, Sam. They go crazy. And they just kill everyone. That's not really relevant to a Eureka moment, but it's fun. Because we, we don't like the suitors, do we? They, they sound like a right bunch of pompous prats. And then we get the final one. We get the final revelation, the, the fourth one that I've t- discussed. There are a few others, by the way. He reveals himself to a few of his um, servants. And by the way, when I say reveal himself, I can hear you sniggering, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't Archimedes, okay? This he is, shows them his golden
0: one, doesn't he, Tom? <laughs> yeah, he, re- he reveals himself. He says, I've not just got fantastic thighs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Oi, tlemacus, have a look at this. Oh,
0: Dad. (laughs) Not again, Dad. It's like all those holiday photos from when we were younger in the 70s. Oh,
1: yeah. Or the 80s when everyone had short shorts, real short shorts, eh? Yeah.
0: My mum's proudest photo in our house is a photo of me about three years old, completely naked from the waist down on a beach in France with a baguette in each hand, wearing nothing but a T-shirt and a sun hat. Oh, that sounds beautiful, actually, Sam. That sounds like a bit of French art. It is, yes, yes, it is, and uh, and all visitors get shown it.
1: <laughs> is it big? Is it about six foot wide and six foot tall in the hallway?
0: Um, well, it's not that big. I was only two or three years old. But, um... <laughs> Very good. But still generous. Very good. Lads, lads lads, 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 <laughs> so, lads,
1: lads. So we get the final revelation, which is where Odysseus introduces himself to Penelope, reveals himself to Penelope, his wife. Um, I should actually point out also that he, his infallible proof of this is when he um, points out that the bed that they used to sleep in was made out of an olive tree that was still planted. So that's his sort of secret bit of knowledge. That was a sort of eureka Ooh, moment from Penelope. Yeah, it sounds like a nice piece of furniture. Um, it does. Presumably still growing. I mean, you could maybe sort of pick a pick an olive in, in your sleep and just have a chew. I don't know. <laughs> it's just got It's got stoats living in it. <laughs> Owls yeah. twit-wooing twi- through the night. Shut up, owl. It was a good idea at the time, having a live tree for a bed. But when the squirrels start running over you and nib- nib- nibbling hey. on your nuts, Sam... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, so we get this mo- we get this moment. I'll, I'll go over it again. At his words, her knees began to tremble and her heart melted. And she realised that she'd given her infallible proof. Bursting into tears, she ran up to Odys- Odysseus, threw her arms around him. Uh, threw, threw her arms around his neck and kissed his head there we go there's the the beautiful final moment the sort of culmination of the of the odyssey where poor old Odysseus finally gets home having killed a few suitors on the way and had some lots of adventures so there you go Sam that was my um my series of literary eureka moments from the second oldest text in western literature
0: I like that and and from Harry Potter as well Something for the kids.
1: Absolutely, you learnt something about Harry Potter. Yeah, there you go. So when I said when I said earlier in the podcast about not knowing how to pronounce Hermione, there was a minor hesitation, wasn't there? And you just sort of went, "Yes, if I if I play along, nobody's going to question that I that I've never read Harry Potter."
0: Isn't Hermione a name from Greek literature?
1: I think it is. I couldn't tell you where. I'll be perfectly honest with you. But yeah, as, as far as I'm aware, it is. And there are a lot of other ones. I'm trying to think of one other one that I came across. I mean Severus. Severus Ron? <laughs> Ron, from, Ron, Ron from the Ronius—that's a uh, famous Greek epic. He was—I th- I thought Ron was one of the gods. God, Ron, <laughs> god of gingers. Oh, nice, god of the sunrise. Ah, oh, that, yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, so, yeah, Severus Snape—Severus Snape, Severus was a Roman name. There were some um, emperors of, of Rome called Severus.
0: Marvelous! Bringing the ancient to the modern. So that segued us uh, neatly from the old to the new, and I'm going to do exactly the same, Tom, because I'm going to talk to you today about Charles Goodyear and the completely accidental invention of rubber.
1: You know about rubber, don't you, Tom? You've heard you've heard of rubber. I have, and I'm also making the connection between rubber and Goodyear. Is that a connection that you're going to make? Um, well, actually, do you know what? It's not a connection. <laughs> no. Oh, is it not? So this has nothing to do with the tyres? No,
0: we'll come to this sort of at the end of the story, this is the end of the story, Charles Goodyear had nothing to do with Goodyear Tyres. Goodyear Tyres were named in honour of Charles Goodyear. And the reason we'll get to know uh, a bit more about that is, uh, or the reason that there's kind of a loose connection there, Uh, Goodyear, very successful company, very big company. Uh, Charles Goodyear, absolutely king useless businessman, but very, very keen on rubber. So I'm going to take you back to the early 1800s. (laughs) Yes, very keen on rubber. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah i'm imagining it. there now are I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, plenty I'm, of
0: jokes coming don't you worry <laughs> yeah. i look forward to it <laughs> so i'm going to take you back to really the the early to mid 1800s the 1820s and the 1830s when rubber as this kind of tree sap that comes out of trees in the amazon and rainforests around the world was first being discovered and people loved it it seemed like the wonder material of its time. You could turn it into into boots, you could turn it into life vests, it was waterproof, it was stretchy. Really magical, magical stuff. People were going bloody mad for rubber. And American investors were putting millions and millions of dollars into rubber factories, rubber manufacturing, rubber design. The problem is that rubber was shite. It was useless, oh. Tom. That's disappointing. It is. The problem is that everyone was so keen on rubber that they never really gave it time. And rubber works really well in spring and autumn, but if you hung around long enough to watch rubber in the summer or winter you would realise that it had some really quite serious problems because it melted at uh, more or less warm day temperatures. And it collapsed and crumbled in winter. So you could have a rubber life vest, and many ships did, and it would work fantastically well, as long as your ship sunk between the months of March and June... (laughs) Or October and November. Any other time of the How year. How bizarre. Yeah, any other time of the year your life vest would either disintegrate into the sea underneath you, or it would melt around your waist and encase you as you went down into Davy Jones locker. Same with boots, same with pretty much anything else rubber was being used for.
1: On the plus side, you'd look a bit like a gimp when you drowned.
0: You did. You go down looking hot.
1: Looking <laughs> yeah, absolutely, looking a little bit like um Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. In- indeed. Have you read that, Sam? Have you read Fifty Shades of Grey? Uh,
0: no. No, I haven't. And even if I had, I would deny it. No, I haven't either. <laughs> Have you watched the films? No. No, no, I haven't no. either. That was, a, that was a conversational cul-de-sac, wasn't it? Carry on, Sam. So what we're going to talk today about is the invention of a better kind of rubber. Because Charles Goodyear bloody loved the stuff he first discovered rubber in about 1834 and he got interested in it he thought this seems like a really good material you can use this for all kinds of things and so he went on a bit of a tour of rubber factories he by the way was an engineer at this time he was making agricultural implements Knew absolutely nothing about rubber, but thought this is the future. And he thought this is the future, as everyone else who had invested in rubber was thinking, oh God, we've lost millions upon millions of dollars. But then Charles (laughs) Goodyear was a terrible businessman. (laughs) So he visited this factory in New York that was making rubber life vests. And the factory owner was quite open with him and told him that rubber was awful, that it wasn't working, and that he was losing millions upon millions of dollars. He took him to a warehouse full of life vests that had just melted into a puddle on a warm day. Really, (laughs) anyone with any sense whatsoever would have been put off by this. But Charles Goodyear, being the king useless businessman he was, thought, I'm having me some of this. And he became an absolute rubber obsessive. It should be noted, by the way, that the factory he visited was in the process of hiding tens of thousands of dollars worth of ruined rubber materials in a giant hole so as not to scare off its investors. Nice. Charles Goodyear looked past all this and uh, decided to invest literally everything the family had ever earned into rubber and making it a better material that could withstand heat and
1: could withstand cold. Sorry to stop you there, Sam, but this this giant this giant hole full of rubber has anyone tried to? Yes. Um, you know. D- Dig it back up again, because surely that would be the biggest bouncy ball in the world.
0: Well, it would be, except that it's probably melted or disintegrated by now. Oh, because it's such... Seeing as old rubber (laughs) doesn't like heat or cold. Because it's such a shit product.
1: Yeah, I didn't... It's such a shit product. I wasn't listening, Sam. Sorry. Yeah, you did say that. (laughs) That's quite all right. Yeah, sorry. Very few people do. You did say it was a shit product. Sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Uh, Carry on.
0: (laughs) So anyway, Charles Goodyear spends the next five years absolutely ruining his family's life. And when I say ruining his family's life, I mean absolutely ruining it. It's never a good thing when you discover your father isn't a rubber Tom. Uh, it's even worse when it's in a mad scientist way rather than in a seedy back alley
1: way. Is it worse, Sam? Uh, I... <laughs> is, is it? I, I'm not... Uh, yes. I mean, may, uh, I don't know. I've not experienced either. Maybe there's a listener, Sam, who has experienced both. <laughs> and they can they can maybe call in.
0: Yes. Hey listeners, uh, do you live in Pampas grass fronted suburbia? Does your father like to disappear at the weekends and come back with slight <laughs> rashing around the neck? If so, get in touch with us at That Was Genius on Facebook.
1: Do your pool balls keep going missing? <laughs> when your dad answers the phone, is he always muffled? <laughs>
0: Does he break into a cold sweat in that scene in Pulp Fiction? <laughs> yeah. That's a good scene. It is a great scene. Anyway, Charles Goodyear really bloody liked rubber. He spent literally everything the family had ever earned on putting shit into rubber and mixing it to try and get it to stay in shape. It should be added. Charles Goodyear was not a chemist. He hadn't got a flipping clue what he was doing. So he would grab anything he could find, mix it into rubber and try and make it work. Everything from lime to paint stripper to dyes, everything. He
1: sold his children's school textbooks to buy more rubber with. He ruined everything. Oh, that's better than I thought it was. I thought you were going to say he sold his children. I, I, for a moment there, I thought you were going to tell me he sold his children. Not quite,
0: but, but nearly. Um, he sold all of the family furniture. He ruined every pot, pan and teacup they owned mixing rubber. He was sent to debtor's prison for not paying his uh, taxes, not paying his debts. Uh, he smuggled rubber into prison and spent his time in prison playing with rubber in his
1: cell. (laughs) uh, No, I've never been in prison, Sam, and I don't think you have either, but I imagine uh, showing an interest in rubber objects probably isn't the best thing to do as a young, vulnerable male.
0: (laughs) Well, quite. Um, Although, to be honest, I imagine people were probably scared of him because if they'd gone too close, he'd have tried to turn them into better rubber. (laughs) But remarkably, through absolute chance. He did manage to make some improvements to rubber over the five years where he was selling the family silverware and spending time in prison. He did manage to make it a bit prettier. He managed to make it a bit smoother, but he didn't manage to make it less shit and melty. There are no words for how much this guy absolutely loved rubber. It was his thing. He was Mr. Rubber.
1: You've got to admire his persistence, haven't you? I mean, he clearly sees potential in this rubber. He
0: absolutely did, yeah. And and he did have some business success along the way. He designed a rubber mailbag, which he sold to the US Postal Service, uh, which on hot days melted over all of the mail. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And at times when he was really destitute and needed money to buy rubber, he got by by, uh, getting a job in a rubber factory. I mean, he really, really loved rubber, Tom. There are are no words for how much Charles Goodyear loved rubber. I mean, God, he loved rubber.
1: He he loved rubber, yeah.
0: In fact, he loved it so much, uh, it's said that he was flailing around madly one day in a shop whilst giving a sales pitch on, uh, unsurprisingly, rubber. This was in 1839, and the story goes that whilst he was flailing around, he accidentally spilled some rubber, which he'd mixed with sulphur, onto a hot stove. And at this point, there was... eureka moment
1: fantastic
0: because he didn't want to lose his rubber sample so he scraped it off the stove and discovered that actually it hadn't melted what had actually happened is that it had gone hard and completely by accident after five years of trying he had spilt some rubber onto a stove that had been mixed with a little bit of sulfur and he had created the perfect rubber it no longer melted it no longer cracked it was smooth it could be easily moulded and designed into things. And most of all, it was really cheap to improve it. That's fantastic. He'd nearly killed himself along the way. He'd made himself sick several times from inhaling noxious fumes. He'd sold his kids textbooks. But he'd made fucking rubber. And he'd made it good.
1: You know, sometimes, Sam, you've just got to make that commitment, haven't you? You know? You've got to be willing <laughs> to, de- to destroy everything you-, everything you hold dear. Sometimes you do. In a desperate attempt to prove all your doubters wrong.
0: Yep. In the quest to make a better welly, yep. there can be no sacrifice too great.
1: That's, yeah, that, Q Elton John. <laughs> that is that is an excellent story. Where did you find this one out, Sam? Because that's an excellent Eureka moment that I've certainly never heard of. Do
0: you know what? I don't really know. I'd heard about it at some point in the past and thought that it was a great story, so I did a bit more reading into it. The story isn't quite done yet. Or carry on. It's, it's not a good story, <laughs> the remainder of it. The conclusion is... Uh, I'll be honest, it's something of an anti-climax, but it does go to show what an absolutely terrible businessman Charles Goodyear was, despite his moments of luck. The process, he named it vulcanization after uh, Vulcan, the Roman god of fire. And, and it comes full circle, Sam. Look at that. It comes full hey? king circle, doesn't it? And, uh, yeah. and the process is still used today. Everything that we make out of rubber today, from uh, tyres to rubbers, is made by vulcanizing rubber, by heating uh, sulphur-infused rubber. And so you'd think that, given that it's such an important invention today that's used in so many things, that he would have made an absolute fortune off it, wouldn't you? You would hope. Well, no, Tom, no. Uh, I have mentioned oh. several times that Charles Goodyear was an absolutely terrible businessman. And this is just how much of a bad businessman he was. He sent samples of his new mega rubber to all of the big rubber manufacturers to help drum up sales and interest. He was hoping he could, you know, sell the license to make it. Unfortunately, he sent it without any kind of paperwork and without establishing any kind of patents anywhere outside the USA. And a couple of the British engineers he sent it to very quickly noticed that uh, there was a yellow tinge to it. And so he'd done something with sulfur reverse-engineered it, and patented it throughout Europe and most of the rest of the world. Goodyear sued, Goodyear lost. <laughs> Do you know why Goodyear lost? Again, this is its kind of a side note, but this is how much of a useless businessman he was. The two English engineers basically admitted what they'd done and offered to settle out of court and pay him a 50% royalty on, on everything that they made. Yeah, which, which would have made him an absolute fortune. But he was so angry that his invention had been stolen that he decided that he would pursue it through the courts and try and get them for everything they were worth, at which point they basically went to court and said, look, there's no possible way that just by looking at this rubber and seeing that it's yellow, we'd know how you did it we completely invented it ourselves it's serendipitous that it happened at the same time and he lost do you know what they needed sam they really needed to go absolutely ham with a bow and arrow and 12 axe heads unfortunately they were all made of rubber and just bounced off
1: and or just melted in the hot Ithacan. Or frankly. just melted, yeah. Yeah, it, I'm not sure Ithacan is actually a word, but we'll roll with it. <laughs> he unfortunately died in
0: 1860, two hundred thousand dollars in debt. And I haven't done the uh, the modern the modern conversion of that, but I think that's you know that's a couple of million dollars in debt. Yeah. His family did eventually get some money from royalties and uh, all of the other patents that he'd made along the way for rubber-related inventions. And, of course, the Goodyear Tire Company was named in his honour. Yeah. But he really was an absolutely terrible businessman and a useless chemist who happened to have one happy accident spilling some rubber over-enthusiastically on the hob. And that... Is the end of the story. So I'm
1: guessing, Sam, when uh, you know when he was bankrupt, uh, is all his checks bounced. <laughs> hey! See what I did there? I thought that up about two minutes ago, Sam. Just waiting. Just waiting for the right moment. You have been very patient. Ah, thank you. I ah, Thank you very much. <laughs> have you heard of the musical Eureka Moments? There's a good one from Paul McCartney with uh, the song Yesterday for the Beatles. Have you heard that one? Uh, is this
0: the story when he... He was asleep and he dreamed it
1: yeah, and he, he wakes up and I think he yeah, speaks to John Lennon and says, "What song is this?" I, you know they discover it's not anyone else's song, it's actually just something he's dreamt up and they they then get to work on the song and lo and behold, they produce the song yesterday, and by all accounts this this isn't a unique thing. it's happened to quite a few musical artists, I yeah. think Have you ever done it Because I remember as about a twelve year old waking up from a dream with a really cool rift in my head. And uh, I hummed it to one of my brothers and he went, sharp. And I went back to sleep. That could have been me made, Sam.
0: <laughs> I, what you were in fact humming, though, is enter the Sandman.
1: I think a lot of these Eureka moments are actually, that they come about through a slower process. Um, and then there's just a sort of quicker breakthrough where someone goes, ah, yeah, that's the thing I was looking for.
0: Well, who knows? I mean, it's, it's all part of a rich storytelling history, isn't it? I mean, Eureka moments definitely happen. You've got Alexander Fleming coming back from holiday and discovering that he'd accidentally Oh that's you know, penicillin cultivated isn't it? Penicillin. Yeah yeah
1: yeah I did hear that was a good yeah that is another good one. Maybe I'm wrong Sam maybe oh, I'm I I think
0: you're a skeptic Tom. Think <laughs> okay, you're a, you're a healthy skeptic but a skeptic nonetheless. Oh I'm definitely a skeptic. You're the kind of person who doesn't believe that NASA put men on the moon. They didn't Sam. And that's that's fine. They didn't Sam. I read it on a website. They didn't. <laughs> and the internet never lies Tom. The internet never lies. Elvis
1: is still alive. The world is flat. Yep. And that's all true, because I read it on the internet. Got it all from Infowars. Thanks, Alex Jones. <laughs> nice. So what's are we going to set a topic for
0: next week? Why the fuck not? Let's give people something to look forward to in the bleak midwinter slash wonderful summer, depending on where in the world you're listening from. And we do value all of our listeners, so thank you. All three
1: of you. Even those who think you get autism from um, getting your MMR vaccine? Uh, I'm
0: not so sure about them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Take them or leave them. Take a believe like i like your style sam i like where you stand you're a man of principle
0: i certainly am
1: i've had some ideas i i reckoned what about journeys journeys and not the rock band you can't go down the rock band route
0: uh well apart from anything else that is journey singular but yeah i i like journeys
1: excellent right well, how about that then you happy to, to settle on that for next yeah, week? let's
0: talk about journeys next week let's do journeys i think that's a, that's a good one Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Do come back next week for episode two, in which we are discussing great historical journeys. And until then, it's goodbye from snowy but lovely Manchester,
1: and it's goodbye from uh, rather sunny but dark New Zealand.
0: Rather sunny but dark. Oh, it, it, sorry. Do you it's want to rephrase that? Sorry,
1: sorry, sorry. It's the middle of summer, so we're having some we're having some lovely days, but the day has gone, <laughs> Sam. The sun has has set. And it is night time. The
0: fire god Ron Weasley has dipped his head below the horizon. (laughs) We'll see you next week.